Welcome, David. Hello. Welcome. <laughs> welcome, Matt. Thank you. Welcome, Chris. And welcome to the birds outside the window. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear them. Yeah, we. so this is the second episode of the uh, newly christened podcast um, called The Imaginator. Christened, christened podcast. No, pun intended. It's a, give, it's, it's a given name. <laughs> it's, it's, we're dedicating this this morning. No, just kidding. Um, uh, yeah, so we are here with uh, Vineyard Canada Pope, um, David Roos. <laughs> That'll be edited out for sure. <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> so <laughs> we are here today with uh, with our good friend and national director of the Vineyard, David Roos. Let's Hello. just leave it at good friend. That sounds right. Oh, but where's your credibility then, man? I uh, know. <laughs> Brilliant artist, good songwriter, solid. <laughs> he leans in. Yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So, um, yeah, we are today jumping into um, what we think is a three-part sort of um, series of episodes that are going to explore kind of this big story of what it looks like to be, uh, not just to be creative um, humans, but to actually, what does it look like when we do, do the work? Um, what's behind the work that gets done when we do the creative thing that uh, that's in us? And um, we want to dive pretty deep into what is behind what we're doing. Um, and the thing with this podcast, one of the broad aims um, is to help to create a sense of community between um, the artists or the imaginators, if you will, and we can unpack what, th- what that word means for us at some point. But... Um, those of you who are doing the creative work, who are among us, whatever us looks like in this, yeah. um, and with within the church at large, you know the work of her artists it varies a lot, um, you know, and we kind of historically, and I'm talking about the capital C church here, we have a, an easier time with some creative expressions than with others. We're, we're very good typically with the worship song or with a, a, a book of prayers or um, some of our liturgical expressions. Um, we start to get a little bit uneasy sometimes around innovative tellings of, of the gospel um, or a, a good protest song. Sometimes we don't know what to do with that kind of creativity within within the, the structures or the organizations of the church. Mm. Um, and then we're often completely mystified by something like abstract art and just have, you know, for uh, historically we, we, we haven't had a great track record for knowing how to respond in um, encouraging and helpful ways to that. I'm speaking with a, with a broad stroke and I understand that, but, um, you know, if we consider something like Bob Dylan's Masters of War song or Van Gogh's Starry Night um, and, you know, the Church of England's The Anglican uh, Book of Common Prayer. The differences between those things are pretty obvious, but it's actually the, the thing that holds them together is the glue that we want to try to unpack, right, between these different expressions. They're so very different, but there is something that is um, at the core of that work, that is in common and that is in community. And that's sort of what we want to try to dig into over the next few episodes. Um, And so it's about finding some common language um, that holds 
us together in community and mutual respect. And that we that means we have to cast a pretty wide net. Um, so with some, what we hope is very real humility, we're going to attempt to distill the work, and there's air quotes around that, into three primary focuses that I think might lie behind a lot of the work that we do. And so we have creational creativity, um, which is what we're going to lean into today. And that's um, so the work that celebrates life, that's, um, uh, that, that creates and acknowledges and recognizes beauty and truth. And there's something that there's an intrinsic value in just simply the act of creating. Um, and then in weeks to come, we'll dive into uh, what we're calling missional creativity, which is uh, essentially creativity from the church for the world. And that can look like, um, it can look like present, uh, presenting the gospel, but it can also look like engaging in justice initiatives and taking a creative approach to the problems that are, are in the world around us that we see. Um, and then we're going to spend some time um, talking about ecumenical creativity. And so what I mean by that is basically just that creativity that is f- um, from the church for the church that helps us to express our story, our history, uh, helps to give language and articulation to, uh, to our worship, helps to form our languages of prayer. And so there are sort of these three main thrusts of creativity. But what we really need to uh, make clear before we get too far into this is just to recognize that these are really pretty artificial um, constructs, right? And so we want to approach each of these with really fuzzy lines and recognize that these things are going to bleed over. This work bleeds. It's not, you know, this is missional. This is a missional piece of art and this is an ecumenical piece of art. It's not nearly as simple as that. And, uh, And so we just want to have blurry lines in between these things. It's just a construct for us to hang the conversation on. So the basis for this is just, it comes from asking two really um, basic questions. I don't know how simple they are, but they're pretty essential. Why do we do the creative work that we do? And to what end or ends are we doing at that work? Um, and so that's what we're going to be exploring over the next, over the next uh, few episodes. So... Um, it's really good to all be together in the same room. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so I, I guess we can start, David, like if you just want to unpack from um, your perspective and maybe some of your story and how that um, weaves its way into being the creative person that you are, might be a great place to start. Yeah, how do you answer that question? That's really kind of cool. I was... Uh... <laughs> I think it's significant to the story. I was adopted, which also, you know, kind of, I've always had that effect, sort of my, so I have this deep appreciation, I think, of, of being welcomed in somewhere. I, obviously, that's language I've discovered way later in life, but I, that sense was always there. And part of it was kind of interesting, because the people, the parents that adopted me, really, as far as artistic expression and stuff, had no creative instincts at all. Like, just not. But they had this deep conviction that whatever children, I had one, just one other sibling that was adopted as well from different backgrounds, that that would be a huge part of 
a wise way to raise a child would be to expose and to involve them in a creative process. So I, at very young, I was, I think I was uh, just turning like five years old. I was immersed into both uh, the exploration of piano and voice. So, and obviously, I mean, something was tapped in me that is just part of my wiring that, you know, so very early on was aware of capability. I had a really great initial teacher that um, was a piano instructor first and then would have just Sunday afternoon kind of sing-along things. Um, not a Christian environment at all. This was had nothing to do with church or anything. This was just completely outside of that that reality. And she just heard my voice as well, I think, in some of these settings and started working with me, although that wasn't her main forte, was was vocal coaching, but that was a... She just took me aside and started entering me into Kiwanis Music Festivals and various things, and so this kind of this whole thing kind of started happening. And then when I was, I think, seven turning eight, I was living in Calgary, grew up, born and raised there, and there was a, a brand new creative venture starting out of Mount Royal College, uh, which was the Calgary Boys Choir. had never existed before. So I went and auditioned and was a charter member of that. So that was a great experience. And stayed on even after my voice changed. I, I stayed uh, as a, a accompanist and then uh, on or, 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 oratorios and stuff like that, small operettas, that sort of thing. If they needed a tenor as part of one of the characters in these things, that uh, I would step into that space. So that was kind of cool. I also, fun little side thing, I don't know if there's anything to do with this podcast at all, but uh, I, I actually did uh, audition for uh, and made the cut for the Vienna Boys Choir, but then my parents decided not to send me to Europe into boarding school and that environment, which for various and sundry reasons that we found out way later in a report in the Los Angeles Times, actually, it would not have been a good time for me to have been part of the Vienna Boys Choir. So I was kind of saved from some kind of wacky stuff that was happening behind the scenes in that creative environment. But yeah, so that really shaped me and that kind of stuff, you know, uh, pursued to a significant level my Royal Conservatory um, stuff with piano and then various vocal things and such. Um, I have a question maybe that you can mm. build on. Um, having been exposed to a lot of music and different things when I was young yeah. as well, and my sister as well, but my sister at a, a certain point just dropped off. It's like it, it didn't interest her, it wasn't part of her. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to uh, say anything about that, about why it would grab you and maybe not some other people that were thrust into a creative learning environment. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, I mean, I had my sister actually would have had a similar she was, you know, immersed in the same thing and actually had some significant uh, abilities. Uh, but she, yeah, she kind of fell off. What was it? I think for me, it was very um, rewarding, actually. It's way too shallow of a word. Like there was something about it that was me. Like I was able to express express myself. I actually, which a lot of people don't realize, I'm actually quite introverted. So I'm in that environment and something does come alive, you know, that 
maybe allows me to sustain in more of a public space. Seems to be there are quite a few sort of artists that step in public arenas that actually have this sort of similar thing. So it's kind of a fascinating deal. But yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Being again, identify yeah. with that being quite introverted. But uh, and again, I'm using it in the positive sense. The word performance. Yes. It's almost a way of processing part of your personality, part mm-hmm. of your integration with with you the world. What? I wouldn't have thought of that. That's true, though. And with each with people, uh, because I just did a theater performance on Monday night, hmm. and people that know me in the academic setting going, "Who was that person?" You know, performing, and I think, no, that's to me, that's just uh, such an immediate way to connect to people where mm-hmm. you're telling a story. The risk's a little lower because you're not telling your own story. You're telling a story that's already been crafted. And there's a way that you're sharing a story or making a story together. And I think maybe in music, you're almost making it with people at times because, yeah, uh, especially in a in a more of a worship participatory yeah. setting than just strictly. But I would I would pull on the thread a little bit of I don't know if this is a vineyard centric kind of thing or a big discussion, but you know, I think one of the dangers in the church. Okay, give you my experience. So because I was more trained in a uh, more, what's the right word, right? Like it wasn't garage bands and all that, which is like super, super cool. And that's an amazing way to hone a skill and all that. But I I came in much more sort of from the academic side, maybe, of, of art. And there is a dark side to that, for sure. My my, da- my oldest daughter is a is a very, very gifted visual artist. And she went to a prominent school, which I won't mention, prominent school in Vancouver, uh, was accepted to, to all of our delights. But she was partway through her first semester, and uh, we were living in Los Angeles then, and she went back up to Canada to, to be part of this. And I remember her phoning me and saying, Dad, she says, I love this. This is always going to be part of my life just because it's who I am, this expression to, to, through art. But she said, I don't want to turn into these people. Like it was really insightful kind of, just that you can unwittingly just step into sort of that, a bit of an arrogant space that you kind of have this sort of expression and stuff that the common masses won't understand. So so I get that side of it that needs to be whatever, but I stepped into, stumbled into more, uh, learning how to how to unpack this in a congregational sense. And I remember being sat down by someone and it really, really actually... Uh, knocked me back for a long, long, long time. I like, I mean, multiple, multiple years. And it was like, if you're going to do this here, like for the sake of the community, you need to turn off all that stuff. You need to give all that up. You need to die to excellence to, well, not excellence so much in that, but but I mean, in that ilk, in that, in that expression, you know, don't overarrange, don't be too... And so there was something, I loved what you said, because there is a positive, I think, part of performance uh, submitted in the right way, but that actually can serve community, and it might not be the catch-all basin of, of corporate expression, although that's critical, and I think it's right in the center of the wheelhouse, but something really, really died in me. And it took a long time to figure that out. And just in the last years, um, particularly the last church planting experience where I began to identify that and go, oh my goodness, there was a whole part of who I could express myself to be to serve the community. It wasn't about 
being the center of attention or this and that, but something got lost in my ability to just really be who I was. And I wonder if that's something, as faith community, we need to really be aware of in the wiring of artistic people, and and we're, we're all, we all lose. Like, we really all lose. Um, anyway, I know we're probably way off on a rabbit trail No, here, no, but... this is, this is, no, this is perfect. Um, it actually leads really well into something that I've been thinking about in terms of, like, just this conversation right now. Um, so... With your work, kind of the body of your work, um, I think it'd be fair to say that uh, you know you're you're known for creating um, worship songs, songs that are are sung in the context of of you know faith communities or whatever. Um, you've also done uh, and been involved with in you know some fairly significant ways initiatives or creative projects that would bring awareness to particular causes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and sort of serve a, a, a bigger you know higher ideal or a bigger purpose right like the the uh, world vision uh, movie that was uh, put together last year in support of Nepal. Um, but the thing that's really interesting about um, what you've brought to the table over the years is that it seemed like just getting the job done didn't seem to be enough like because you've always from my perspective been somebody who's trying to push out push out to the edges a little bit uh, out to the creative edges and what i'm curious is what's the like what's the drive to do that like why not just write the most singable song in the most common time signature (laughs) you know or whatever like what's the even visually you know uh, like what's the push to sort Mm. of get out into the weeds a little bit Mm for you. Yeah. It might be like just a weird mix of it's another aspect of justice for me. So it's 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 kind of an upside down thing in the sense that maybe a voice that might be heard in another context in the church that voice kind of sometimes gets silenced. The more creative edge, the more and so it's like nudging, you know, to go, hey, this is here. And it might not be the loudest voice. It might not be the most central in this particular genre or this whatever. But it's important for, its, for it to be heard, which then would lean into part of, part of the bleeding to the edges is giving expression to instruments that aren't typically heard in worship, which then takes it outside of Western culture, outside of typical rhythmic patterns outside of even normal scales, you know, all that kind of stuff. And just allowing it to, to kind of lap up against the edges a bit and, and, and see how far it would bleed out onto the page. And so I think, plus, plus I'm a bit mischievous, you know, I think I lead, (laughs) you know, his church historically, I, you know, Franciscans are kind of my favorite. I just see them as the little imps of the church that are always creating <laughs> trouble and knocking things over <laughs> and bringing things. So, you know, so I have a little bit of that, but I have to be careful with that. But I also know there's something of it that I think, they're a positive irritant, if you will, a little bit. So, uh, so a follow-up in, <laughs> I love that. Conformity is, I, I think it's, that, it's a, Here's something I've always tried to say, you know, in our desire to have the whole community engaged, the answer is not communism. Mm. Because communism, in a general sense, you know, fears 
the courageous edge. It fears the voice that rattles the status quo, which is why you most normally see, this is an overgeneralization, but I think you could bear it out historically and statistically, what's one of the first things that gets purged? Poets, writers, playwrights, musicians, artists, because of that 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 voice they bring, they give an articulation and a and a place for statements that that can't cut through the noise any other way. And and sometimes the church as an institution is afraid of that voice. And I want to go, we don't need to be afraid of it. In fact, and I think this is where we're going with some of this, this is actually a huge part of how we encounter God. Well, it's interesting too, right? Like, um, uh, when I think of um, that, and we talked about it in the first podcast, um, you know, this the initial creative act of God into the cosmos, well, not into the cosmos, that was the cosmos, right? Um, there's this, there's this um, image that's invoked of, you know, the, the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the waters, right? And in my imagination, for years, that was always um, like a serene sea. For whatever reason, that was just what was in my head. Mm. And it wasn't until um, doing some reading, I think N.T. Wright really was the first um, voice that uh, started to articulate for me that actually in the biblical imagination, the ocean is a place that represents chaos. Yes. And so the... You know, that actually on the edge of chaos, the Spirit of the Lord was hovering and kind of spoke into that and, re- and was not intimidated by that. And so that's, you know, and I think that the, uh, you know, um, I'll just speak from my own perspective and then maybe, you know, either of you can chime in on this. But, um, you know, when you talk about the experience of having something die in you, when somebody came along and said, "No, you can't. You got to. You got to. You got to. You got to mute that thing. That capacity that you have. Mute that. There's not. That's not going to serve us well in this context or whatever." For me, when you know, because I'm predominantly a musician. I mean, that's my main expression as a as a creative person. I would say, and in those moments where we have wandered, not on, Not only are we off the road, but we're actually off the path. Like we're just kind of cutting sonically into space that I don't even know if it's listenable or not. Um, but in that space, something interesting happens where there's a part of my, um, like who I am, that actually starts to come alive mm-hmm. in the, in the, in the, it's, it's a bit of a dangerous space because you can really, you, you know, you can mess up <laughs> in that space. Like, you know, it may, it may not look or sound beautiful, but it's so alive. And I wonder, as you push into the edges creatively, is that part of it? Like, where it, like, I'd be interested to know, was that healing for you to start to push and go, you know what, we're going to do some funky grooves here that are not even Western. What does that do to your artist's soul? You know, either of you really, I mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah, ditto. I mean, it, it. It definitely awakens something. Uh, in, in the healing story for me, I mean, I was all kind of, for some reason, I was able to disengage that from sort of that initial. It was the classical orchestral kind of 
big, big paintbrush sensibility that's in me. Sometimes, I don't know if this is accurate, but I, I, I understand it when people, even some of the worship stuff that's become quite corporate, they'll say there's like a cinematic element to it kind of a thing. And to me, that's, that, that, that's where that's coming from, is that. So to be able to step out and go, no, I can serve the community through a musical expression or um, even a lyrical exploration that is informative, not, you know, so it's corporate in the sense that it's resonating, but maybe not everybody's participating in that moment, which I think the introduction of trying to understand liturgy better is so helpful, particularly for movements like the Vineyard and some more sort of newer kids on the block kind of a thing. I was in an Anglican service some years ago. A dear friend of mine was um, had gone through all his training and was being, um, you know, ordained. And his dad, who's been an Anglican guy forever, you know, all the bells and smells are coming in and all the thing and all that. And and he could see I was, you know, I, I was attracted to it. There's something incredibly beautiful about it, but I, I just didn't know the handles. And he, he just leaned in my ear, the Matt, you will like this, because he leans in my ear, he goes, okay, just, 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 just don't try to figure it out right now. He says, just think theater. Just think drama right now. And he started describing all the things that were happening in the liturgy through the lens of, of a theater production, which I think historically is the root, you know, into an illiterate, you know, culture, into, you know, people that were coming into the mix of the church, they needed to find a way. And so something that we think now for many has become sort of this dead rote thing, its initial thing was, was right on the edges of creativity, trying to give articulation and expression to truths and things that they couldn't read about, they couldn't whatever, they didn't want to sit through a boring sermon, so they created this whole panorama of theater, which then became entrenched as sort of the liturgy of the church, which is very interesting to me. Yeah, theater is, uh, and again, that's a tricky kind of way of connecting things sometimes, because in theater there's a falseness that kind of is, yeah. you know, the hypocrisy Putting comes on from a different the, character. Yeah, putting whatever, on a yeah. mask or a different character, which, uh, again, it's more a about connecting than being false, I think. But the but the idea of liturgy, and I think that's just something that's a practice, an enactment, an embodiment of a story that sometimes, because the liturgy gets set in a certain mode, it's like it becomes a little bit static. And to me, beauty is never static. It's always moving or transforming or the spirit's always moving, right? Um, but if I could relate the, a little bit experience of theater, so one of the most beautiful and uh, scary things is improv for me because what you're doing is you're practicing faith. You're practicing risk-taking. Every single thing you do, you you haven't thought beforehand. In fact, if you do, you'll end up with something horrible. So you can't do that. You just have to trust that who you are, what you're bringing in that very moment to that community will be, first of all, be accepted and that they will make something better out of it by then adding to it. And so the two things you always have to be aware of is what's happening in you 
and what's happening in the community. So you can't go off story. Like whatever the community has already created, you cannot take it in a different direction. That's being untrue to the community. That's bad improv. So you always have to be kind of aware of the underlying story that's being crafted together. So you can't write the scene. I can't write three lines ahead in my, in my mind when I'm doing improv. I can only wait for what that other person brings and then respond to that and build on it. So it's something very communal, but it's so risky. And you just have to trust that those people will take your humble little words or actions that make no sense and say, I can do something with that. That will now become part of our story and move everything forward. I, I love that. Like, I just, I kind of want to just explore what that looks like because it's, um, uh, we, so, so much of our, the way that we consume um, the creative work around us. And here I'm talking mostly about um, fine arts and media type stuff. But most of it is, uh, well-rehearsed, pre-recorded, auto-tuned, right? Um, and and even that kind of last bastion, or not last, I would say what you just described too, but in my world, like, uh, so the sort of this musical thing, um, the live performance is is actually uh, uh, decreasing. Like I, my wife and I live, Liv and I, we're in, um, we've been going to Nashville with some regularity, but once a year. Um, and we try to take in, you know, a bunch of live shows while we're there. And to see a culture that is actually thriving in that is amazing. It's just, it, it's like a culture shock almost because in a lot of, the, you know, a lot of the towns that we've lived in, we've lived in a few, it's an uphill battle, even that, that place. And so, um, I wonder what the what the impact is of the steady diet of um, pre-rehearsed, written out, um, and I and, and I'm a, and I'm not anti doing that at all. Um, but it's just you said that, and it occurs to me that apart from apart from drama class, I have no exposure to you know to to what you've just described. And I wonder what the impact is on the creative impulses of our, like just our whole sensibilities around. I have an answer. Um, I went to an improv class and had the almost a panic attack on my way there. Dean was driving me down to it and I'm in my mind I'm freaking out I can't do this I can't I can't what will they will I I just okay my two biggest fears were number one I'll have nothing to offer number two what will be required of me I won't be able to bring like it'll go off color or something that where I'm really uncomfortable with and you can't say no right in improv you can't say no you can't refuse you can't block so those are my two greatest fears so I realized that was just I don't know. I was just having a fear attack. So I just said, hey, you just, you go, you face that fear. Anyway, I had a wonderful experience at the improv class. It's, you're just saying yes for an hour straight. You're saying yes, yes, yes to everyone and everything. And I had no idea how much that had just changed me, how, how, how much I'm a no person, really, or put up walls. I walked out on the street, beautiful, sunny Montreal day. I walked out on the street going, wow, that was a great experience. 
and a street person comes up to me, and usually I'm just, mm, no, sorry, thanks, or uh, I'll say hi and be friendly, but I just kind of, you know, kind of not really interacting. I walked right up to this man. I offered my hand, and I said, hello, how are you doing? Why are you on the street today? I want to know a bit about your story. And he's talking to me and telling me a little bit about his story, and I'm just going, well, what can I do for you today? Um, so I t- you know, told him a few different places that I knew he could go if he needed a meal or a shower. He wanted some clothes and laundry, so I told him a few places. I said, would a little bit of money help you? Yeah, that'd be great. So I did and uh, asked his name and just said, you know, I'll be praying for you the next few days. And I said, so happy to meet you. This was great. And then we just parted ways, and I went, who was that person? And I thought, this is what, and liturgy is this too, it's a practicing, it's good practicing goodness or being good or engaging with God or same thing as spiritual exercises, we're practicing doing the good things. And I thought, I just practiced saying yes to people for an hour and it really, really changed how I interacted with a stranger. It's incredible, something jumps to my mind. Um, great theologian friend of mine, Don Williams, some, some people might resonate with that name as part of our community that we were part of uh, for several years in Hollywood, which was in the middle of, you know, just crazy creative swirl and working with all kinds of artists and creatives and that sort of thing. Um, But anyway, in in regards to grace, his definition of grace, which I thought was just brilliant, is it's saying yes. So in regards to God, to humanity— Grace is God's yes over us. When everything else is screaming no, he says yes. When your internal voices are saying no, he says yes. Grace in community is when when we say yes to each other. And like you, you know, unpack there, like we take risks. Sometimes it's risky, it's messy, but you resist the no and you and you give the yes. So this is really incredible, like where that just danced in my mind, like to this whole the whole concept of grace uh, tying into to everything that we're talking about. Well, and it's interesting too, like, um, so we were, um, David and I were at this gathering, Matt wasn't there, this was in Edmonton back in the... Summit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I was sort of dropping in on a session that Rick Barry was doing as the final session for one of his Confluence of the Arts um, uh, 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 events or whatever it was a it was a stream of this gathering and um and so i wander into this room and there are people who are doing all sorts of creative work and rick is is doing his thing and we'll probably have rick on here at some point um but um you know and just sort of orchestrating and 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 seeing how different people can influence one another and then he sends oh i've forgotten her name but he sends this lady uh who i hadn't met before um up with a, a, a poem or a song it was, it was, it, you know, it was, a, it was a verse that she had written, and and said, Rick, Rick says that you know, like you should take a look at this, right? And uh, and 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 so I look at it in the back of my head. I know what Rick is thinking, <laughs> right? And but I do the total dodge, right? I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's that's like solid. That's very lyrical, and I hand it back to her, right? And like two and a half minutes later. You know, and I might be getting the order of the story wrong, but the, the 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 thrust of this is correct. Rick essentially 
has a tried to, and, and this time it's with the directive. Rick would like you to, to, to maybe take this and sing it over the group, right? And I'm like, you know, Matt, right? Like, this is gonna, uh, I'm way out of my comfort zone. I'm afraid I'm gonna butcher this wonderful lady's lyrics, right? But how do you, I, I I'm, I'm in an environment where it felt almost impossible to say no, right? And in, in the most, I, yeah. that can sound totally unhealthy. Yeah, no, this was totally healthy kind of right. boundary pushing, but not in a like bad way. Yeah. So I walk up and I just grab this this hand drum, you know, because why not? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, if you're gonna, you may as well, <laughs> and start, you know, doing this like beat and just. Um, starts singing these lyrics and this melody starts to to kind of weave and go and somebody starts to play some uh, guitar just in behind and this it was so dangerous it felt so dangerous for me personally but it was one of the most special um, uh, communal spaces and it just it was it it felt as sacred a moment as any that i've uh had and um and it opened up you know the room kind of opened up and uh relationships start like there was just there was something deeper that took place and as i was walking away from that after the fact um two things were going through my mind one was that I was very grateful for time spent as a songwriter, you know, like this to have a tool, to have a tool belt to be able to respond to a situation like that. So that's like my plug in the midst of this conversation for just practicing your craft a lot. Um, But the other thing was that that was an impossible moment, right? Like I, I could, there's, no one of us of the three, you know, uh, between this, I wish I could remember her name, but lady who wrote this, um, you know, um, Rick sort of orchestrating or myself just sort of doing what I was doing, um, could have made that happen, right? With intention. All we could do was to create an environment that was risky enough and and kind of had removed enough of the, you know, enough of the markers on the field, on the playing field, that there was, we could make something up. Um, Or without any one of us in the room, right? Like, it couldn't have happened. It was this unrepeatable moment. But I just, it really actually impacted me significantly. And and just hearing you guys talk about about these things, like, it just feels like that sort of risk-taking... And that doesn't happen outside of community either, right? Um, safe community. Yeah, 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 safe community. It's a good thought. So back to the, back to the, the sort of prim- primordial, I said that word correctly, but like the, the sort of pre-creation soup, the, the waters, the hovering. Um, and I've spent time thinking about this a little bit, um, but... So God speaks into that, and um, we have all of the co- like. So the cosmic creation happens, 
you know, whether it happens in a moment or whatever, it's kind of an, an irrelevant part of this conversation. But the co- so the cosmos happens, and there's order, and there's beauty, um, and there's uh, wonder, and then there's into that life, and and then into that life, this moment where the human being humanity is formed into that and initially we don't even have a capacity if we understand the scriptures correctly we don't even have a capacity for recognizing or acknowledging the good and evil like that's not even part of our innate makeup this ability to judge and so and and so god looks at that creation and says this is good Right, um, and I I find that to be really inspiring when I when I think about the, you know so these stories of of um, you know the the spontaneity um, of an improv session or you know some my experience or some of my experiences and you've talked about this as well, David. Um, so here we have these 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 moments that we're exploring um, that have been significant and powerful, right? Uh, and sort of connected with the spontaneity thing. And I wonder, like, what is it about those moments that feels so? Like to me, I would say that that um, th- that feels very pure. Like what you described feels very pure in that process of of um, doing improv and. You know, my experience in Edmonton felt like a very pure and distilled kind of, uh, like there really wasn't a specific agenda. We weren't trying to achieve something, but we were co-creating and there was vulnerability and there was honesty. Um, and there really also, in, in at least in the experience in Edmonton, there really wasn't a sense of, of audience in that space. It was really a co-creational environment. But I wonder if it feels so pure because in some way that, 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 that seems to be of a similar quality or type or timber of what I sort of envision happening in that initial creative thrust of God that created everything before there was a need for mission, before there was a need for gospel or, you know what I mean? Like, because in that space, he spoke into it and he said, it's good. There's something that's intrinsically valuable in that. Um, is that, does that make sense to you, to your experience? Or have I just talked myself into a big circle? No, I, I think that makes sense. The, the only thing that's niggling at the back of my mind in that is Romans 1, where it unpacks the creative genius of God and and states that creation uh, reveals the invisible. The invisible has been made visible. So to me, again, that doesn't the that doesn't automatically mean mission. All of that. What what it is though is there is seemed to potentially a need, if you will, in in the creative impulse to to translate something invisible into something tangible. So whether that's the stars or the trees or the rushing water or 
animals or human beings or what whatever this you know um so that's that's just that that's just kind of what niggles at me so it's it's it there's there still can be an intentional an intentionality that that is pure in that sense but there's something there's something what was it in god that propelled him to to make the invisible visible it's like kind of a very cool thing or or even and i think it would be fair to the text and certainly our life experience it you know or felt or experienced so my thoughts on that are like wind or uh you know there there's a lot of dynamics in the created order that but there's a something gets tangible that was intangible is kind of maybe what i'm saying that is even a, if you don't get it no that is that's a really beautiful um uh, yeah like i i really really like that i mean i think out of our first you know our last episode that we had um we sort of you know matt and i were really wrestling with our the idea of what what is good like in wrestling with you know um yeah this idea of of good you know if something is good that means that it's a high quality or that it's good as in it's moral or or whatever but i wonder if i i suspect that we're going to be chasing this idea a bit like wind probably over <laughs> the arc the, of this whole yeah, whatever however series, long this conversation right. is yeah um but um because I think that no, at the at the sort of the thing behind the thing, mm. right, if I can say that, mm. um, is that we're I think we're called to create with God in that in in, in goodness to create and be able to look at it and say that is that is good. Well, yeah, what I was just going to jump on that, though, is like, it, I think it's a, a helpful exploration of going, okay, but then what is the goodness in more, ah, that really reveals who I am or what I'm feeling or this and that, this and so. So now all of a sudden, good can take on, you know, a K. So for example, you you out on the edge of musical exploration and you're you're in this dissonant you know what and you're like oh there's just something that felt good about that even though that might never no one else in the universe is ever going to even want to hear that but there was something authentic in it there's something genuine so you have you know not to drill it down and you know create sort of this spiritual thing but in the beautiful sense of spirituality the cross then becomes beautiful the scars on Christ's body become beautiful because that is the truest what was the most visible indicator and graphic, you know, expression of love is this broken man on a cross, which should be the most ugly, marred, and yet God takes a deep sigh and goes, that's good, because that's who I am. And it's like, you know, these weird creatures at the bottom of the ocean that we're still discovering are these bizarre, you know, dynamics. I think God, the, the goodness was more, ah, that expresses what I'm trying to say right now, versus, oh, it's good because quality control. Although quality control is, is, is awesome, but um, 
And yet maybe that's the capacity in God to even look into the brokenness of creation and still discover the good. It's not that, oh, there's this one little bit in there that didn't get screwed up. It's like, no, you know what I mean? Maybe it's more robust than that. Maybe it, it it's the bandwidth on that is way bigger than we actually think. Yeah, that's, that's somebody write that word down, right? Because I, I... Let's lean into that and just capture it. <laughs> nice. Um, so as bandwidth broad, having, having a, a really broad ex- expression or, or a capacity for what creativity can look like, I feel like that is really um, almost one of the mandates of this conversation is to is to broaden that, and so I really kind of love this, right? Because it wasn't just it wasn't like so. Let's let's look at Jesus. Let's look at the cross. It wasn't just that God so loved the world that He sent His Son and rescued us. That that is beautiful. Like let's say that's mission, right? But there's something that is absolutely stunning about how he did that. Well, and according to Isaiah 53 and some other texts, but that one most poignantly, that actually is glory. The broken man of sorrows is the glory. Yeah, do it. Uh, no, I'm just tying it back to your story where you said you were welcomed in. And this thread throughout whatever you, all the stories you were telling, I thought the welcome just seems to be this thread that keeps coming up again and again. And, and for me, the, the story arc of the drama of God, if you want to put it that way, is it starts with a gift of self-revelation. Here's the world. Yeah. And then, and it's always moving towards glory. And every step of the way, every time God reveals more, uh, it's, a, it's a glory. So the cross is revealed. It's like both a gift and a glory. And it's like God is always having to like, re-educate us. This is gift. This is glory. Because we always skew that into something else. This is entitlement or this is I'm going to make something. I'm going to invest and make more. Or we're always trying to monetize it or make something more of it for ourselves and keep it for ourselves. And gift is never to be kept for ourselves. And we're always twisting glory into fame or self-aggrandizement or we're making something big and people will recognize it and we'll feel better about ourselves or something. And I think God is always, again, saying, well, let me show you again what gift is, what it means to receive and then give out of that and what it means to gaze upon glory, to join in the glory. And in fact, he says, you want to join in the glory of Christ? Suffering. Enter into suffering. You'll see glory like nothing Nothing that having a huge ministry and following. Well, yeah. that kind of glory, no. Yeah. Look at this kind of, again, learn, the, welcome into the glory. Yeah. Um, no, I just it, like this. It, it's an appropriate thing to stop and just contemplate some of this because, um, you know, 
there is just so much plastic and so much uh, slick um, that inundates our senses and our mm-hmm. and our sense of, and then therefore our sensibilities because we're formed by the environments that we inhabit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as we as we contemplate what we're called to as creative beings, um, you know, ref- reflecting this in some way, some some element of this conversation feels like, uh, you know, I'm 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 good. Like I'm asking the question: Is what I'm I, I, I'm personally often asking the question, or probably always asking the question. Um, if I'm engaged in some kind of creative endeavor, am I am I am I contributing something valuable in this? So is it worth is it worthwhile? Right? It's just and whether that's right or wrong, it's just it is part of what is in the back of my mind as I'm working on something. Um, you know, am I leaving something behind? Am I investing in some form of legacy? Like these are just that's just Chris's process a little bit. Um, and because there's so many things that we can't control that feel like success as artists. I'm speaking specifically about people who create and release stuff into the wild a little bit. So if, if you write a song or you write a book or you do a, a clever you know, YouTube short or something and you put it out there, um, you can't control... W- what kind of feedback is going, you know, th- that feedback loop and how that's going to feed your soul or destroy your soul or whatever. And so I think for me, this conversation is like, uh, what's enough? Like at what point, at, w- at what point can I be satisfied as a creative being that I am, that's enough. I can, in, in the sense I can kind of almost die to the thing. Like I know what it's like to release a song into the wild and then to check every 15 minutes whether or not there's been a reaction to it. Like, I know what that feels like. I wish I didn't because I wish I was a better person. <laughs> right? And so there's sort of this thing of, you know, it feels like we're getting, we're getting close. Like we're kind of getting into really close orbit around something that we can go, if it's this, if it's this and nothing else, I'm good with that. It is good. And I feel like that might be a really helpful antidote to some of the poison um, that we are surrounded by in social media and these feedback loops that are either building us up, which is about often about creating a sense of ego or tearing us down. And yet, you know, the question is not really at the end of the day. I mean, we want to serve in all of that. We want to be in community and that's not bad. Um, but there's something that seems very healthy about being able to go through a process that says, if it's nothing else but this, I'm good with that. And this feels this feels like a good, we're close. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, to me, it's kind of two sides of the mirror, if you will, like that, as we were talking earlier, that sense of deep satisfaction. Yes, in this moment right now, this really has authenticity to it that when that reflects back that's that's real um 
and you can actually only really be the gauge of that and that you know the uh, you know the pull to commercialism that sort of stuff you fudge you this now i don't know like it's a maybe a whole other discussion if you're in a different arena and you know but for the sake of of this like that that deep satisfaction right there but i think there's another element that plays into it is maybe it's the same thing like this that it it's there's nothing held back in it or there's there's no mixture because we keep using this word pure so where my brain goes in the text is to Laodicea to Rev, the book of Revelation where God or Jesus is you know he's not really like adjudicating or judging the churches I guess although he kind of is he's definitely in an evaluation process but I can't quite see him like you know like Gloria Estevan on the idol or something like like you know it's I don't think that's the posture you know is this a 9 or a 10 you know what I mean it's like but there is something evaluatory is that a word <laughs> about about what he's doing but in the descriptor of himself his self description as he's dealing with this church he says I am the source of all creation uh, which is a really profound word. It's like this deep, you know, it's, he's the source, but it's specific that it's creation, it's creativity, it's that. So it's not just the source of life or this, that, but that creative process. So apart from all the implications of the text, you've lost your first love, you've, you know, you're, you know, you thought you had it together, but you don't, and, you know, uh, there's all that stuff. But the, but, as a creator, so he's he's obviously looking at this community through the lens, because he, he self-identifies. Okay, my hat on right now is create is a creative, an imaginator. Uh, so when I look at your deeds and I look at how you're operating, he says, "I just want to spit it. I just want to spit it out. It's lukewarm. It's not hot enough to soothe." an aching body in, and it's not cold enough to be a refreshing drink. It's just bland. And I just go, whoa, that's like so, so even from God's perspective, even even just in the rhythms of living in community, and it seems very, very important to him, and I think for our own soul's well-being, that we discover creative outlets and expressions of faith and life, you know, for because we're, we're kind of on this, you know, sort of broad descriptor here right now, but that, but it's actually passionate. Like it's actually, there's skin in the game, there's risk, there's, but that it's a real true reflection. It's not the status quo. It's not just the median. It's not, there's something, now I'm kind of rambling, but yeah. you, you know what I'm kind of trying to push at there? Yeah. Yeah. Um- I have a story come to mind, which I think it speaks to the same thing, the, the, the genuineness, the bringing of your whole self, the not holding back in some way. Yes. But I know you're saying more than that. But the story, No, but that's the essence of it. Yeah, so this, the story that came to mind, and I might get some of the details wrong, uh, of some of the monks in the early Christianity, and 
one of their tasks, I mean, they would go, they were hermits, so they lived in the caves by themselves for much of the time, and then they would come out into the community for uh, every so often, whatever, it would be a few months or or uh, longer than that. So, uh, but one task, I remember one monk had one task, was to take uh, reeds from the area all around him and to weave these baskets, um, literally a basket weaver. Hmm? Anyway, to weave these baskets, and that was his, his work. Uh, the monks believe working, you know, yes. or elabora, pray and work. So that was his work. He wove all these baskets, and over the year he would collect an, an enormous amount of wonderful baskets, very intricate handwork that he had done. And every year he would burn them all. And that was his sacrifice to God. He made those baskets for no one else but for God. And I thought, and again, I'm not saying this is what we should all do with our life's work, uh, but saying there's a, a spiritual discipline of my work is only for God. I He knows whether it is good work, whether it is honest work, whether I have, oh, let's just make a basket really quickly and no one will know. Well, God will know. The work is for God. And at the end of the day, no one else sees all this wonderful craftsmanship. It is burned as a sacrifice to God. And I think there's something in that hidden, if you want to call it worship or work or creativity or imagination that says this is for no one else. Mm-hmm. And I know in our my work as with the church as a pastoral person, very often I think, what is, <laughs> who, like, is this doing any good in the world? Is there any fruit that you can really look at? And again and again, I'm brought to this. There might be just one person that caught something of what you did and they met Jesus in that. Is that not enough for you? Why do you always want at least a dozen people telling you that that was good or showing up at anything, any community gathering or hundreds of people? Uh, You know, if there is one person... And maybe it's only you at that right. point. There's one person that's meeting with Jesus. There might not be any other. Exactly. Why is that not yeah. genuine good work that you can say this is good? Mm-hmm. The presence of Jesus is here. Yeah. The glory of God is being shown yeah. in this. And I think I always have to check my metrics. How do I measure mm-hmm. that this is worthwhile yeah. or good? Yeah, memory was jumping back to me as well. What Chris was talking, now it's coming back again with you. I was, remember in a community we were developing in Hollywood, um, we had to meet in this space, and often I would have to go in late, late on a Saturday night and kind of set up the space. And I'm just a, it's partly anal, OCD, probably, but there's probably like a whole unhealthy side to this, but there also is a, a whole, I think, artistic kind of creative side to to shaping the room, getting the chairs right, everything, even the little nudges of, of placement of artwork or the Eucharist or, you know, various things like that. And I remember being in there late one night because I couldn't get in there till really late and I'm tired, but, I, but I'm really, like I'm passionate, you know, like I, I actually am, like I'm and I remember the thought hitting me. I was adjusting some chairs, like literally. And I was thinking, oh, I'm tired. Maybe I'll just go home. I was like, is anybody even going to, like, no one's even going to notice. In fact, they're probably going to walk in and just move it all. And then I just had the weirdest flash. Like, I mean, legit, for real. I had this weird uh, kind of snapshot in my imagination. Maybe it was my spiritual mind. And I, it was like I saw the hand of God 
like you described way at the beginning of this podcast, way up like on a mountaintop somewhere, putting this flower in place that nobody would ever, ever, ever see. Like maybe no animal actually would ever see it. Like no, nothing that could enjoy that thing other than God uh, is going to encounter it. And he carefully, I just saw him carefully just like, like just getting it in the right spot and like setting it in the thing. And I remember then like, then I'm, then I'm like staring at the chair and it just hit me like deeply, like this matters and this is good. And there was something deeply, just deeply satisfying in that moment. As dumb as setting a chair up, but it was like, it was a creative moment. For everyone who's ever mocked me for being very specific about how (laughs) chairs are arranged, I just want you to know that I'm doing the work of God. Yes, it is the work of God. I would agree with you. Totally. It just made me think of that. And then there was, I don't know if we're going too long now, but there was one really watershed moment for me, which kind of blend some of the pieces together maybe first time I ever went to Cirque du Soleil and it was down in Florida and I ended up in this thing and I mean I'd always kind of wanted to see it but I remember sitting in the middle of this performance and I just started bawling like just weeping because what had happened was it's precision it's this it's that I mean there's some horror stories of what goes on when you know when when stuff's off rehearsed obviously all this I had a dear friend from LA that was that was in one of the traveling uh, shows and uh, that I got to know after this event but was sitting there but they have the live music I don't know if you've you've seen that and I'm not sure if they do that at every show but I think they do and this particular setup like is multi-tiered so the musicians are up on the thing and there was one particular act that was doing uh, an aerial stunt and it required, obviously, a lot of expertise, and it was super, super risky. I mean, they had some of the harnesses and all that, which they have to, but I mean, it was it was high, high risk, and they flubbed, they flubbed the first thing. But what was incredible, like, it would just took my breath away, and this is why I began to weep. It took a couple attempts for that thing to come round. But nobody missed a beat. Everybody just stayed in motion. The band, because they had a live band connected to this precision performance, they could just loop the music around. And they just kept the whatever the particular groove was in that particular thing. And and the, the artist could go back, give it another shot. And they were all so aware of each other. And there's a lot of moving parts in a Cirque du Soleil thing. You know, there's all kinds of stuff going on that isn't the main central attraction. That's part of the part of the beauty of, of these things. And and so anyway, I don't get excited blowing up the mic here. But it's like so but I watched it and it was like at least two or three attempts. Well the third time, I'm just saying three, I can't remember the exact, nails it. Well, the place just goes insane. Like, I mean, just instead of it being a horrible moment of failure, but it's because everybody everybody stayed with it. Everybody was in on the thing. The band was able to adjust and pull around. But again, because they were so prepared, they could be spontaneous in that moment. And I actually remember sitting there and I thinking, this is what church should be like. Like high excellence, really well rehearsed, like ready to go, but you can roll with anything in the moment and just go. And the 
the amount of excitement that was in this tent. I mean, it was like being at a, you know, like a big athletic event. I mean, it was like, yeah, score. It was just like, boom. And then, the, you know, the show went on from there. But I thought that is like, that just captured something for me that was amazing. Um, I just had a story that goes along with David's uh, about uh, this moment where you feel like the glory of God is present in some way, right? Um, and uh, I was telling Chris, you know, he said, what, what, what kind of, where do you just find yourself appreciating beauty? Like not where your mind is thinking, oh, that's symmetrical and lovely and isn't that use of color nice and oh, those notes are so well executed, where it just bypasses your mind and your rationale and it hits you right in the gut and you're going, that's just something I just connected so strongly with something. For me, it's a gospel choir. Uh, anytime a gospel choir sings live, it doesn't work when, if I'm watching it on YouTube, it has to be live. Anytime I watch a gospel choir live, I am, am immediately, I must weep, uh, and then I must joyously laugh and maybe do a little silly dance and then try to sing everything they're singing. Like, I just feel like I'm, I'm suddenly alive and I want to be part of the choir, right? And I'm incredibly moved in some way. I don't know. So I heard a gospel choir on Wednesday, and... Um, it was from a local church in Montreal, and uh, they had their choir robes, and I think, oh, goody, I'm in for a treat. And the, the man that was doing the solo part, they had several soloists. One was phenomenal. I mean, she, she would just, like, she reminded me of I just one of those gospel singers that they can wail and sing and do everything uh, and still suddenly somehow be collected and... Uh, I don't know. Um, but the first gentleman that was singing, he was an older gentleman, and uh, he had some of his teeth missing. He had a big stain on his uh, choir robe. I don't know if he spilled a drink on it or something. Who knows what? And I just thought, he looks kind of like a street person, you know? And, and there's this put-together choir, and he is just singing his heart out and talking part of the time. And he's not the best singer, but I thought they chose him to lead this song and to be the color commentary kind of while the choir is doing their thing in the background. I was so taken by him that I thought, here is something really glorious and very humble and unassuming at the same time. And, and I thought, I'm seeing glory in one of its unlikely forms right now, that the choir is kind of put together, but this guy, he doesn't look like he's really put together, but somehow... Every time he speaks or sings something, I believe him. Yeah, there you I go. I believe him when he says, That's God it. is good. God's never going to leave you. Come and taste and see that God is good. He's been so good to us. He has saved us. And I'm going, I hear you. I hear more than your voice. I hear your spirit telling me something about that. <laughs> That's huge. You captured something there. And I think that's the power of, if art it does end up being seen or felt, and maybe, honestly, if it never is, drilling it back to if, if, if it matters for God, is it believable? Like, I believe you. So you said that to that person, but maybe that's what God is longing to say back to us, you know, the John 4, Spirit and Truth which has nothing to do with emotions and theology. It has everything to do with authenticity and, and full vulnerability. And it's like, 
maybe that's maybe that like even from yes and so even from god's perspective even though you bring me the best da, 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 i just can't believe you right now like i'd i'd rather have you cussing me out and like you know just just weeping and wailing than this song of whatever because i it's not believable it's not spirit and truth um anyway that was a weird little take on that but i that's powerful so you walk in, you know something that's commercialized or whatever without getting in all the philosophy and all the topics of that, but that I just don't believe that. I don't believe that little painting with all the little, like it's, you know, it might look okay in a, in a certain setting, but it's not believable. I think that's a huge, hmm. which then brings it all the way around, right, to totally. every aspect of... Yeah, and I was, I was looking for a handle... Um, like a, a a kind of a metaphor to land in the, with this conversation, and I, I and I think it I think it works. Um, tuning is such a powerful part of music mm. and community, right? If we are out of tune, um, then no good thing is going to come. <laughs> <laughs> on some level, I mean, I'm overstating that, but uh, unless if it's believable, well, if it's but 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 that but then you're in tune on a deeper level. Like there a, you go. Like so as a so as a as a meta. So can you yes, do something? Can it. your guitar Just be slightly stay at metaphor level? But yes, on metaphor it. level, right? I think that we're searching for like the the you know our reference point that we can tune to, hmm. um, because when we slip out of tune. You know, we might be able to do something that's that that looks and smells good, but as soon as you try to create any sense of community around yeah. that, it just becomes yeah. false, oh, right. right? And when we think about this, you know, the work of God, the creative work of God, as being like our our true, you know, our true note, right? Like our our four forty. This is what we tune to, um, uh, and if. You know, that feels to me like a really yes. good landing point, Excellent. a really good reference and, and metric to go to, to yeah, because this is part of the process, right? We are, we, be, we as, as creative um, people believe in cultivating and in working our, you know, whatever it is that we do creatively to invest in that and to form it and to shape it. And part of that is working craft, but underneath that is tuning the the quality of of the of of our creative impulse itself, right? As we're doing that, then it kind of doesn't matter what happens on the other side of of the work. You know, you're doing good work. You know that you're in tune with the creative God. You know you're doing creational work. You're co-creating something, and it's true, right? It's not destructive. Because I think at the end of the day, that's my, my biggest, not fear, but I see the polarity of the human capacity for, um, for beauty and for investing in chaos and destruction, right? And what I love about the tuning metaphor is that you can be in tune and you can still create beautiful dissidents. It doesn't mean that everything resolves all there the time. Go. It doesn't mean that there's not wounding and it doesn't even mean that there's not the occasional bad note. But being in tune at core... It's a good. It's a good place to be. The Lord saw and said it was good. <laughs> what the heck? What accent is that? I have no idea. <laughs> okay, let's do a song.
we need to do a sign off because sign offs are fun. Sign offs are fun. Sign offs are fun. So hey, listen. Uh, thanks, David, for hanging out with us. You're welcome. <laughs> it's Chris McQueen. This is Matt Downey. And this is Dr. Schlaven. <laughs> David Roos. Touch you next time. <laughs>